Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 261 of Yoga Land. Today, my guest is Dr. Mona De La Hook. Mona is a licensed clinical psychologist with more than 30 years of experience caring for children and their families. She's a senior faculty member of the Profectum Foundation and a member of the American Psychological Association. She's the author of two books, Beyond Behaviors, Using Brain Science and Compassion to Understand and Solve Children's Behavioral Challenges, and her newest book, Brain Body Parenting, Using Brain Science and Compassion to Resolve Behavioral Challenges, is the one that we will mostly focus on today. So this is a different kind of episode in that this is a yoga podcast. We don't usually have parenting experts on the show, but... I have been familiar with Mona's work for years, and it has had a profound impact on my own parenting. And when this book came out, I felt like just so many moments of the book aligned with the things that we do in our yoga practice that I wanted to share it with you all. So whether or not you have children, I think this episode will be really helpful to you to provide a framework for how the practice that we're doing, all the practices that we're doing in yoga are really serving us and helping us self-regulate so that we can manage our own behavior. So even if you're not trying to cope with the behavior of a small human, you are always coping with your own behavior and with the behavior of those around you, your coworkers, your friends, your family, your spouse. So I think that this book applies to all of us. Mona describes her approach as warmly engaged, compassionate, and based on neuroscience. These are all things that, that yoga teachers try to do as well. So I just know that you will enjoy this episode. We talk about her view of the nervous system and the body brain connection as a platform and how we can keep that platform sturdy. I asked her to explain the three pathways. So this is based on polyvagal theory, which I know many of you are familiar with, but she she just presents a really clear and concise view of these three pathways so that you can constantly be assessing your own pathways. Or if you are raising a child, assessing their pathway before you go in and try to to manage them. She also talks about the importance of co-regulation. And this is something that as a younger parent, I had not heard about. What I really heard about was when your child tantrums, ignore them. Don't ignore them in any kind of malicious or vicious way, but in a neutral way, ignore them until the behavior subsides. For some children, that might be the right thing to do. For my child, that was the absolute worst thing to do and just led her to go deeper into a dysregulated state because she couldn't she couldn't manage those feelings yet and she couldn't manage all the sensations. And so it wasn't until I learned co-regulation that everything in our whole family life started to calm down. And we just started to see so many beautiful shifts in in all of us. So we talk about co-regulation and and how important that is for building resilience. And I am really convinced that this is something that is such a healing part of the yoga practice. And then Mona also shares some groundbreaking research on interoceptive awareness and the role that it plays in helping us to identify and express our emotions. 
And the last thing that I want to mention is that it is Autism Awareness Month. And Mona and I talked about this a little bit in the episode where we are hoping that at some point the name will be changed because I think we are far beyond awareness and need to be moving to acceptance and even embracing of neurodivergence. Mona is a very strong advocate for understanding children's unique differences in their preferences, in their neuroception, in their sensory systems, in their pay, the pace at which they self-regulate. So if you are suspecting at all that you have any neurodivergence in your family, I recommend her books should be absolutely on your bedside table because she's just so informative. And if you find yourself feeling like you're trying to fit your child into the school system or any other systems, and it's just not, it's just not working for you. Her perspective is, is one of many people at the forefront right now who I just respect and I'm so grateful for. Okay. I know that you will enjoy this episode. I will put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 261. And don't forget to check out our website. Jason is now has registration open for modules two and three of his 500 hour online program this year. And we're just so excited to keep learning together with all of you. And if you are near or or in London, and you want an opportunity to study with Jason in person this year, you can do that through his hybrid training. So that's part online and part in person at TriYoga in London. So you can go to their website to check out how that will all work. If you have any questions about any of our programs, you can always send an email to support at jasonyoga.com and we will get back to you as soon as we possibly can. All right. Enjoy the interview. Mona, thank you so much for being here today to talk to Yoga Land listeners. Oh, Andrea, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I had um, a neuroscientist named uh, Dr. Dia Grant on a couple weeks ago, and it was like one of my most popular episodes. So I know this is going to be two because let's face it, those of us who are interested in yoga are really interested in the mind-body connection. And that is just really so much of what informs what you do in your practice. So your latest book is called Brain Body Parenting, How to Stop Managing Behavior and Start Raising Joyful, Resilient Kids, which who doesn't want that in their lives? <laughs> Joyful, resilient yeah. kids. I know I do. <laughs> yeah. So I would just love to hear about, you know, how this book came about for you. What what was your what was your why behind writing this book? Mm. Well, like you said, those of us who are interested in the body mind connection, and I've been interested in it for almost 25, 30 years. So I started really early due to a group of colleagues and I that studied neuroscience as a kind of, as the research was happening for the decade of the brain, it was so, it was just a really great opportunity. And it was alongside my subspecialty of studying infant and toddler development. Mm. So when you think about as a psychologist, you know, infants and toddlers can't sit on a couch and tell you what's on their mind. And so it was all body. It was nervous system. It was reading body signals. How do you know when the infant or toddler is in distress? So my practice was really mind body 
which was kind of apart from the training that I, primary training that I had as a psychologist, which was mainly talking and cognitive think, you know, thinking logic, helping people change their uh, maladaptive thoughts, which is all great, but it, it didn't work as well as once I connected the fact that we can look at the body for clues Mm -hmm. as to what the child needs from our parenting, from their school situation, from, you know, those events in their life that essentially were calling parent, having parents call me to ask for help. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of the, the genesis of it. It was just a very kind of lucky way that I came upon a lot of the theories, including the polyvagal theory, which was just beginning to be written about in the 90s. Mm -hmm. I think what's so amazing about your work is that for parents like me who have, you know, who my daughter's almost 10 now, but as a really young child and, and as an infant, she was just one of those kids who was constantly in distress. So, so to not, like you said, to not, for them to not be able to formulate their thoughts around what was happening, which she can do now. I'm just grateful for people like you um, and so many of your colleagues who have pointed to, you got to look at their sensory experience. You got to look at their nervous system. You have to be able to read, like you said, read their body and their clues instead of looking at just their behavior. And so this is a huge paradigm shift that, you know, you are at the forefront of, which is for parents who have kids who have sensory issues or any, any anxiety, any number of issues, you get the call from the preschool. That's like, so-and-so, you know, your child is hitting or your child is doing this, your child is aggressive and they kind of get labeled and their behaviors get labeled. And as a parent, you panic because you're like, I think I'm a bad parent or I'm not doing it right. Or why is my kid distressed? What's wrong with my kid? All these things. So stressful. Yes. So stressful. And it's just, I think you're wisely pointing out you and your colleagues that looking at, you have to look past the behaviors Mm -hmm. and what's going on in, in the body that's creating this. That's right. That's yeah. right. That was the book. The first book I wrote was called Beyond Behaviors. And I wrote it just for that reason. I had seen so many scores of, of little preschoolers who were asked to leave the school or dismissed, right? In a mm-hmm. nice way, like we can't handle your child. And in that book, I, you know, I just talk about the stories of when we were looking at the behavior on the surface versus when we understood the the triggers, the causes, what's mm-hmm. what's promoting the behaviors, really. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, you just find so many answers and it's not as scary. Because I know we feel so judged as parents and we we also judge ourselves. It's really hard because the stakes are so high. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have to be afraid of be- behaviors. Even behaviors that are agitated are useful. They're useful information and they're not a sign of us not being a good enough parent. It's mm. definitely not that. So mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm really happy to get that message out there. And that's why I wrote this book, Brain Body Parenting, to not just address those children who have been labeled with challenging behaviors, but all of our of, of child rearing has to do with, I think, gaining an understanding of this little person and mm-hmm. how they're perceiving the world. Mm-hmm. And the most exciting neuroscience to me in the last maybe three to five years, because she started to publish for the 
regular audience like us, I'm not a neuroscientist, I'm a translator of neuroscience as a a psychologist, but Lisa Feldman Barrett, one of the most top cited uh, neuroscientists in the world, wrote a couple of books that just completely made everything align with another theory I I use, the polyvagal theory, on the fact that sensations in our body are the ground zero for our basic affects, if we feel good or bad, if our child feels yucky or calm, and then later starts to lay the foundation for how we label emotions. So I am so excited about this. I can't even tell you. I'm so (laughs) excited about this because, well, let's get there, but I want to kind of back up first because um, you know, you mentioned the, the polyvagal theory. Um, and I do think a lot of people listening will be familiar with that. There's a lot of trauma-informed yoga teachers who who listen, and I've done one episode about that. And, and for sure, yoga teachers are familiar with the nervous system and the parasympathetic and the sympathetic branches. But I feel like it's always helpful to get different frameworks. So you have a framework for these different pathways. And I wonder if you could just explain that. Well, we found a simple way to describe uh, a basic nervous system state of our autonomic nervous system. You know, that's that's kind of our automatic. We don't think about it. It's how the body is taking care of us. And so I describe in the book, I, I describe our, our brains and bodies as kind of the platform that launches our behaviors and our emotions. And we can figure out how strong or vulnerable our child's or our own platforms are by looking at three different colors, red, blue, green. And in the green, our body is calm. That's the ventral vagal pathway for your listeners that know the uh, parasympathetic branch. And then, so when we're calm, we can learn. This is when our children can uh, maximize their ability to stretch and to learn new things. And of course, we all love to be in that in that calm state. But as humans, we're not meant to live there. We're meant to be active participants in our environment that throws us curves every minute of the day, whether it's through our thoughts, our emotions, or through how we're managing the sensory environment outside or inside of our bodies. And so then we have these other two protective pathways, the red, which is commonly known as our fight or flight, the sympathetic nervous system, is characterized by movement. Essentially, a child may be uh, moving their their bodies all around, like running away or kicking or hitting or screaming, but it could also be yelling or talking loud or moving, their, darting their eyes around. So I give a, a lot of these, well, they're called biomarkers, but in the book, I just describe how we can look at these signals to determine what's happening in, inside of our child's nervous system or our own, of course. And then finally blue, so that we have the the green is calm, the red is more agitated, and the blue is where people start to kind of shut down, conserve energy, so there's less movement. There could be a sense of uh, disconnection from others, or in very extreme situations, kind of a freeze response. Mm -hmm. But these are three basic ways we can think of, of it. As you know, Neuroscience is way more complicated than that and very interesting research about the blended pathways and how they mix together. But for purposes of parenting, I think it's just very user-friendly to think about where are we? Are we red, blue, green? Where's our child? Basically red, blue, green. And it's an easy way in seconds, we can kind of tabulate the amount of stress in in their little bodies and what to do next. Yeah, I think it's so useful. 
even like you said, just for ourselves, and I was, I emailed you that I it just, there are just so many like light bulb moments reading your book because I really do see so much crossover bef- bef- between the concepts that you lay out and then our yoga practice. And so clearly, like so many of us are drawn to yoga for many, many different reasons. Yeah. But I think the thing that keeps people going to yoga is the green pathway. I think it is one of the few physical endeavors that reliably brings you back to the green pathway. And I credit Shavasana mostly for that, oh, right? Please. Even if you're having like the most intense agit, let's, like, let's say for me, if I was in like a super hot room, you know, at this point in my life doing like a really super grueling class, I might be in kind of like reddish platform yeah. throughout that. But once I'm in Shavasana, I I sit up, I'm open, I'm receptive, I have shiny eye. I just, I feel there's that reset. There's that nervous system reset. And like you said, in your everyday life, you're kind of going in and out of those so often that when you're interacting with your coworkers or your spouse or your children, I just think having that check-in with yourself when you're feeling triggered, like, okay, I'm in the red pathway right now. Like, how how do I want to manage myself in this situation? It's just so oh, helpful. It's so helpful. And if we can do it with self-compassion and without judgment, it's like observing, mm-hmm. oh, this is interesting. And I just have to say, I, I'm so with you on, on the yoga, the link between yoga, mindfulness, and the green pathway is so strong, not yeah. only in research, but I know for me, a same experience. And it's also why I'm drawn to like things like yoga nidra mm-hmm. and therapeutic yoga and just yoga where you are stilling your mind and body and just doing that long shavasana. It's so amazing that the wisdom of the ages understands that our bodies need to be taken care of and noticed. And yeah. I know as I, as you probably read in the book, a lot of my, in my motherhood, because my children are adults now, but when I was actively mothering little children, I was in a pretty much of an out-of-body experience. There was so much to do. I felt very accomplished, right? I could do it all. I could, I liked to multitask, but, but I don't think I stopped long enough to realize how my body was doing. And if parents can do, learn to do that, I think it's just, oh, it, it changes everything. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely does. And, you know, it's vital, as you said, also as a parent to kind of go back to that place and, and fill your own cup. One of the things that you talk about when you refer to the platform is like, is your child's platform, and again, you can apply this to yourself too, you know, is your child's platform in a vulnerable state? So that's another way to think about it. Like, am I, am I like, is everything kind of teetering on the brink right now? (laughs) Like, and then, and then the thing is that this framework, like if you, if you notice that, then there's something you can do about it. There's something you can do to strengthen your platform, which, yeah. So I hadn't heard of Lisa Feldman Barrett. I'm really excited to check her out. And you you said she actually has a book, so that's exciting. But I feel, from what I understand from the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, she's looking more at, is she looking more at sensory processing or like more interoception in terms of like the origin of, of emotional states? Yeah. So she is mainly looking at interoception, which is a very hot 
topic in the neuroscience field right now. It's really on fire, <laughs> but she, yeah, she, so she's a, a specific researcher. She's interested in how we construct emotions, how emotions are made and this trajectory that she has discovered through a lot of different research angles through for, you know, a good, I think she's almost 18 to 20 years in on her research, but it's, it's hitting the, the, the popular airwaves now. So the, although I I'm sure she would believe that all sensory processing is useful because that's Mm -hmm. how we understand the world. The only way we understand the world is through our senses, right? Mm -hmm. All of our senses, but this one sense, which is the newest one that's kind of recognized in interoception is the subconscious feedback from your body, essentially from all your sense organs and your gut to your brain, kind of giving a, a moving picture of what's happening inside of your body. And most of the time it's, we're not aware of it, but we do become aware of things through something called interoceptive awareness. And that's when we could feel a tummy ache or a toothache or a gripping or tingling somewhere in our bodies. So those kinds of sensations that we feel actually come from this newly described sense interoception. And the cool thing is that developing an appreciation for sensations is actually the bottom level, the foundation for helping our children develop emotional literacy later on. It's so crazy. So I've been using it, like I've been using it with the toddlers I work with. And even toddlers can, you know, all of a sudden dog barks and they're and they're and their eyes get big and they're like, oh, you know, it's like, oh, you know, and then the toddler might might say loud. And then all of a sudden they've had this awareness of the intensity of something. Uh-huh. And that is such a great skill to be able to pay attention to what's going on in your body. And sure enough, yoga helps us do that. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much in yoga about noticing what's happening, noticing what's happening. And like you said, noticing, hopefully without judgment, I mean, we all do it, but just bringing yourself back to just bring yourself back gently, simply to the noticing. So, so can you give it an example or piece together? I mean, it is Autism Aware- Awareness Month, and I, I I hope that someday it will be, the verbiage will be changed to like Autism Embracing Month or something like that because I do. Uh, you know because we're sort of beyond awareness like we need to just embrace all the different types of people. I don't even call it right now. I refuse to call it Autism Acceptance. I call it I'm see Autism Awareness. I can't even say it. It's Autism Acceptance. Yeah, but I think. In- embracing is a better word because (laughs) autism is not something we need to be aware of or accept even. It's something that is a part of the rich neurodivergent condition of certain individuals that has been really misunderstood, I think, for so long. So yeah, thank yeah. you for mentioning that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like you you are, you know, part of helping to bring we we talk openly with our audience, like we're a very neurodiverse family, all of us. So we certainly embrace that. And you know, one of the difficulties, I, I think I had this as a child very much. I think that's 
why I've had kind of like my own special interest in like emotional health my whole life, because I definitely had, was very overwhelmed by emotion as a child. And Mm -hmm. to the point where like, I think I was kind of hyper empathic. Like if someone in my family was fighting with each other, like I would cry and I wouldn't even know why or what I was feeling. But it sounds like this idea of interoceptive awareness informing our emotions, if I'm saying that correctly, it sounds like this might be able to help people with autism or any kind of challenges in learning to identify their emotions. Do you think that's a possibility? Like I being able absolutely to absolutely yeah. do a hundred percent. And a a colleague of mine actually is studying this and wrote a book about it, Kelly Mahler. M-A-H-L-E-R, and she has a Facebook group and she's written a book on interoception, but many of her clients, she's an occupational therapist, but many of her clients are autistic children and neurodivergent individuals whom she is helping make sense of the information that is coming into the body and how the brain is interpreting it, processing it. This feedback loop I really believe, I really think that, and it's not just me, um, there's other researchers like uh, Elizabeth Torres, who's another dynamite researcher in the autism world, who is looking at what's called the noise and the kind of different, uh, and uh, by noise, it's a, that's a kind of a, a scientific word for differences in the feedback loops that autistic people have, some certain people have, because everyone's different, but in how that information is getting processed and how the, how it impacts our movement and Mm. our movement is everything. Our movement is, is communication. Our movement is how we move our bodies and all that. So, oh yeah, Andrea, it's such an exciting time. And I do believe that this field of interoception is going to be very supportive. It already is in helping maximize relational connection, communication, decrease suffering and and isolation Mm -hmm. and those feelings of loneliness, especially when it gets to the helping fields where many of our autistic children are being asked to, through compliance to are getting reinforced or punished for not punished, but you know, reinforced or planned ignored. Consequenced, yeah. Consequenced for different behaviors, which is yeah. more of a behavioral model. This other model of looking at the wiring differences with compassion, with interest, and only changing the things for children that will help them increase their sense of themselves and decrease their own suffering, I think is is really where, where things are heading. Yeah. Yeah. I I thank my lucky stars for that because, you know, as I mentioned, when our daughter was younger, we just sort of thought we took all the kind of traditional parenting advice and like did timeouts and, oh, you look back and you kind of cringe. And I am grateful to you that (laughs) I'm grateful that you're open about some of your, your past moments too. And yes, you know, if, you have a certain type of child, they will reward, they will respond great to a sticker chart and they'll, they'll be fine with planned ignoring. But planned ignoring for us was just awful. And I still feel badly about it. And what I learned from you, and you talk about this a lot in the book, is the importance of co-regulation. And I would love for you to talk about that because I think it's still not out there in the mainstream. I still think it's not something that everybody knows about. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah, I do. I, I think you might be right because it's heavily in the field of early intervention and infant mental health. But I don't think in the mainstream, it seems in the parenting world, it's a, it's a buzzword right now, but I'm not sure it's, it's very well understood. And that's why I dedicated a whole chapter to it because I think it's so important. And the first thing we need to remember with co-regulation is how important we are. And that again, no blame, no shame on everything we have done, everything we do as a parent, because we we do have the best intentions. And we are socialized, really, to do this kind of idea where we want to reinforce positive behavior. So that's, let's, I just want, don't want anyone to listen to that listening to think, oh, no, I did it wrong, because that's not it's not wrong. It's just different. And what the ideas that I'm talking about in terms of co-regulation is that when we have distress as a, as a human, the way we feel better is through another human witnessing what's happening and lending their warmth and their care and concern. So it's kind of two nervous systems coming together. That's what you do or you try to do right when you have a baby because they're always needing us they need us 24/7 and toddlers really need us as well so co-regulation is an interesting idea and it's often i think maybe confused with something like being spoiling a child coddling. or coddling or just saying yes to everything and it's absolutely not that so it's not just being nice you know, even though it's fun to be positive, it's not just being not, it's not being nice. It's really understanding what that individual needs in order to feel better if they need help. Mm -hmm. And that's where we kind of learn about how to, when this challenge zone idea, this challenge zone of when we should let our children work through something as, as children need to do to self-regulate and when they need our help to co-regulate. Mm -hmm. And I think in definitely in the younger years and the toddler years, there's something called an expectation gap where preschoolers, especially, but also neurodivergent individuals are asked to be more self-regulating than they're actually able to do yet. Mm -hmm. uh, they're actually able to, to, they need more support. And that's really what co-regulation is. And it's also the biggest building block from infancy up to future resilience. So the research on that is really fun and amazing. And it just shows us how important this noticing is uh, of another human state. Rather than noticing their behavior, we want to notice what their behavior represents Right. In, their, in their brains and bodies. It makes me so happy to hear that because, well, a few things. I mean, I think you're right. It's so interesting that as a parent, you're like with sort of mainstream parenting advice, at least in the US, I'm not sure how it is elsewhere, but the the idea of witnessing, affirming, attuning is often confused with and even pausing, right? Even pausing and saying, oh, oh, shoot, you hurt your finger? Let me see. Does it really hurt? I can see that that really hurts. I mean, that with my kid is like all she needs, right? But, you know, the, the sort of traditional like, oh, you're fine, you're fine. 
does not work. And, and it's just interesting that like just that moment of pausing and witnessing is often confused with coddling, right? I'm not telling her to sit there and keep crying over her finger, but I'm just helping her through it. I'm helping her witnessing and then guiding her through it. And your story about the one, there's a story in your book that just stood out to me and just like really touched me about your grandmother sitting next to you while there was a fire outside of your home. And I don't know if you want to tell that story, but it's just like, I think the other thing about it is to remember, and you said this so well, that you don't have to change the person's state. You don't have to work and you don't have to like say things to make it better. You just have to be there. Yes. Yes. Well, I just love your, what the example that you just gave, the, the power of the pause Mm -hmm. of just taking that moment and noticing with the child. Oh, oh. And then they'll look at their finger and, and, and in that millisecond, it could be, yes, the pain is, is getting, is increasing and I'm going to, and I'm going to tell you about it. Or it could be that, yeah, we're noticing it together. That is so far from saying, oh, everything's okay. Don't worry. You know, that, you know, it's a subtle, but very important distinction that it's when we pause and notice, and we are being with someone when, when we are, our being is actually more important than what we say. Um, totally. And someone told me yesterday that uh, a psychologist named Gordon Newfeld has been saying that for years that how we are is even more important than what we say at times. So I just love that. And so, yeah, so that was that, that story that I wrote about co-regulation because I had, I did have an angel in my life that co-regulated with me beautifully. Hmm. My mother would have, if she would have known how. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But my mother was definitely in the camp of something was, if I was upset or anxious or worried or scared, it was definitely, oh, there's nothing to be scared about. You know, she was, God bless her, uh, very uh, optimistic, but really it didn't make me feel any better. But I had this, (laughs) I had this angel in my life, my my paternal grandmother who came to um, live with us in America for like four months out of the year. It was just so amazing because her whole job was in her mind was to play with us. And there were four of us, three siblings and I, and we just played with her all day long. We hung out with her. She read us stories. We played European board games and she spoke Dutch. I mean, it was just so fun. And I'll, yeah, I'll never forget. Um, I was, I was, we were sitting, our, our home is near the foothills in California and there were brush fires can whip up during the Santa Ana winds. And so there was a big brush fire right outside, maybe three blocks from my, from our home. And I was looking outside the window and I was so scared, you know, there's that bot, big red flames. You could see them even though they were three or four blocks away. And she sat with me and I'll never forget the, you know, what she was wearing a yellow and purple lavender dress. And Mm. she smelled like lilacs and Dutch chocolate. And she would just sat there with me holding my hand and not really saying very much other than kind of looking at these beautiful flames in amazement, like, Mm. Whoa, look. And she held my hand and she was calm And I 
synced with her S Y N C E D. My nervous system started to sync with hers. And I was observing the fire then, and we were observing it together and feeling safe together. And sure enough, you know, after a few hours, it went up and over the hill and it never came down towards our home. But I'll never forget that night because I experienced what it was like in my body to be have a rapid heart rate, all these fears and scares running through my mind and sitting by someone who helped me feel safe and who loved me and who witnessed with me, didn't try to talk me out of it, mm-hmm. but through her pr- gentle presence. And to this day, when I'm going through a, a struggling time or I am I'm needing some calming presence for myself, I call up her her the vision of her of her face. I can see her clearly and it helps calm me down. Oh, that's so nice. That's such a gift. That's such it was a, gift. a gift. Yeah. yeah it was a great gift. felt that. I mentioned to you that I'm convinced that so many people in my generation and and the generations that are coming up still perhaps didn't have people who knew how to co-regulate with us because it it's you know it is really a new concept. Yeah. I mean, not that people didn't naturally do it, like your grandmother just naturally did it, but like you said, I mean, this whole idea that co-regulating can create resilience, I think is a new learning for all of us. So I think so many of us who were drawn to yoga and drawn to the yoga room feel that, right? Like for me, I think I was searching for something when I went to yoga. I didn't know what it was, but what I found was some a teacher who co-regulated the room for all of us constantly, right? No matter what we were feeling and the, and asked us to check in with ourselves. How's your knee feeling? How's your hip feeling? How's your mind feeling? How's your breath? Okay, keep breathing. Okay. And and you know in that neutral but encouraging and soothing way and you know I know that so many yoga teachers right now are struggling. COVID was so hard and it, you know, remains difficult. Studios have closed. Online classes are hard. I just want to say to all you yoga teachers out there, you are making such a difference by helping people to heal from this these many years of not having that gift of having someone to co-regulate with them. Ah, oh, amen. Yes. Yeah. It's such a group. It felt like to me a group co-regulatory experience. You could feel the energy in many of my yoga classes. You could feel the energy of the room just calm and co-regulate from the beginning to the end. Yeah. It's amazing. And that's, that is how it works. I mean, emotions are contagious. We can kind of pick up on the, on each other's uh, senses and we don't have to worry, make that worrisome, but think about those things in our lives that add to it. Yeah. Yeah. I've even found it's not, it's not the same, but I've found some good co-regulation on some of the yoga classes that I take that have, that went online, for example, uh-huh. that have uh-huh. to go online. Right. So we can think about this whole idea about co-regulation in so many different ways, but I think we have underestimated the, uh, underestimated the power of presence mm-hmm. and witnessing someone else's suffering and really not having to necessarily change it. But think about your greatest yoga teachers and how they made you feel like, even if you were like really down on yourself for a stretch you couldn't do or, or falling over like I often did in a pose, <laughs> that acceptance of this oh, yeah. 
a race, you know, this is, this is our body. This is our, this is our feelings in our physical body, which translate, I think, into our feelings of our brain and our mental state. Right. Right. I can remember, I taught yoga briefly, maybe 15 years ago. And I can remember I had a small group of students and just being blown away in the midst of a one hour yoga class at a gym after these people had worked so hard all day at how hard these people were being on themselves. Like I could just tell, right? They're not talking, they're not doing anything, but they were all just trying so hard. And I used to just say to them, guys, it's okay. Like whatever you're doing, it's just okay. You're doing great. You don't have to, you know, not that I don't want people to try, but we're just always kind of applying that pressure to ourselves. So anyway, letting it's go of such that a mirror. Yeah. It's just, it's how we are in everyday life. I tried really hard as a mom. And when my, in my first three or five years of yoga, I think I tried really hard and I was hard on myself, but then over time realizing that it really, for me, the magic of yoga and mindfulness practices in general mm-hmm. is to realize that the progress is in being as in, mm. in allowing oneself to be as still as possible, if it's for a second or for a minute or for an hour and to just accept what's coming through the body yeah. and the mind, just, ex- just allow it to, to be there. And I just think our culture doesn't allow us much time to, you know, it's very hard to be a parent and we are constantly multitasking. So yeah, that's a, it's so awesome that you found yoga I'm very grateful. Very grateful. Yes, I needed it. There's one more. Well, there's so many more concepts I want to talk about, but one more quote that I want to bring up, which is you've said flexibility is a cornerstone of resilience. And we've been talking about resilience a lot on the podcast lately because of coming, you know, sort of hopefully coming out of COVID and, and, and just, like I said, it's changed so many yoga teachers lives. And I just wonder if you could unpack what that means a little bit from your perspective, that flexibility helps us with resilience and how do we get there? Yes. Yes. Well, I know, think about all the rapid changes everyone had to make when around March of 2020, when COVID created such massive need for change, almost overnight, literally. Mm -hmm. It was... I was on a plane flying back from Seattle, which was ground zero to LA and things in the air in that hour changed night and day. So when we think about flexibility, it's really this idea that one can take in information from the world as it's happening and adjust and shift. And many of us, myself included, thrive on having uh, patterned, predictable experiences, right? <laughs> that is, those are healthy. Those are, we all love them. We all love predictions. And when we think about this, this idea of flexibility, think about for our children and for ourselves, I think some people can maybe come by it more naturally. And as I am studying more and more of this idea of interoception, going back to the beginning of the conversation, is that, again, there's no blame, no shame. I think that some of us feel things more deeply in a different way 
which is a beautiful way. Think about how empathic you were as a child, right? <laughs> how you would sense things. This is a beautiful characteristic of a, of a human that I think we have these different set points. And for some of our children and for some of us, this flexing and kind of accepting to yourself in the moment, okay, this is this is a change. I'm going to move my body or move my mind in a certain way and shift can be very difficult. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about resilience as this ability, uh, one of the, of the cornerstones, I, I think of it is the uh, ability to flex through change. When our children go to school, they are going to have to flex with change throughout the school day. Someone's coughing or snorting or making fun of them nearby, or somebody's eating their lunch in a really loud way and it makes you feel really bad. The teacher is is moving around and doing things really fast. This idea that we can kind of keep up with something while being compassionate to ourselves and not going into the red or blue, but kind of staying green mm -hmm. is a learning process. And every human, me included, we're on that path to trying to try to get that to be more flexible. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the thing, again, the, one of the things we can do for our children to help them develop this ability is well, modeling, it helps. I've, I talked about that in the book, how we can model it, model our own flexibility through change. You know, mm -hmm. we burn something right before the company is supposed to come over for dinner. And we kind of in real life, like think on our feet and breathe and stay green instead of falling apart. Mm -hmm. But the other way we can do it for our children is through, again, through this compassionate awareness of when our bodies feel uncomfortable, comfortable, a little bit overheated, a little bit slow, and then help our children to realize that all of the states in our bodies are our friends. Hmm. That helps build resilience. Hmm. Yeah. That awareness and then acknowledging, resonating, and then responding with skill yeah. is the goal, I think. <laughs> well, and it's a learning curve and we're always doing it, but that's the other wonderful thing about raising raising our kids, raising humans is that we don't have to get it right. We're not meant to. Resilience happens when we figure something out. And if we mess up too bad, we can repair with our kids, right? A rupture happens, we can do a repair. That's yeah. growth happens. So yeah. we don't have to be perfect. All we have to do really, I think, uh, is have self-compassion. Number one, to be gentle on ourselves because we are, we the research shows how hard parents are on themselves, like especially moms. We're so hard on ourselves. And then realize that um, we have the opportunity to, to improve our relationships with our children and, and change how they predict we will act towards them and the world will treat them every single day. Hmm. There's hope every single day to, yeah. to guide us and to help us predict safety, which is what uh, our bodies really want is safety. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Mona. You're so, uh, you do have such a warm and uplifting sense about you. And I just appreciate you so much. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Andrea. Be well. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening. I'll put links to Mona's blog and her website and her books at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 261. If you enjoy episodes like this one, please let me know. You can let me know by sharing the episode on social media and tagging me. It's Andrea Ferretti on Instagram. You can let me know by leaving a rating and review. You can also always email me at andreaadjacentyoga.com. I love the psychology slash neuroscience related episodes, and I think you do too, but it's always good to know firsthand so that as I'm planning episodes, I can go deep into these rabbit holes that I love. All right, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice. <laughs>